This podcast contains strong language and suicide is mentioned. Hello everyone, it's Joanna and welcome to Sam Magazine. Today, it's Friday as I'm recording today's podcast. What's new with me? For one, the dogs and I ran in the rain this morning, and I've realized that on my phone app, if it shows like one little raindrop, that doesn't mean it's go- we're going to get light rain. In fact, I think we ran during an atmospheric river. It was coming down. It's so deceiving because we headed out a few little light raindrops. Then we got it. We got a whole bunch of rain. And then when we finished, little raindrops. And now it's sunny. I shouldn't complain. The dogs and I got some fresh air and it was great. Now, I don't mention, I don't mention my books that often. So for newcomers coming to this podcast, my name is Joanna Vanderfluck. And I am the author of The Unraveling, Dealer's Child, and March 16th, I am launching Spy Girls. It's the third book in my Jade and Sage thriller series. You don't have to read book one in order to understand book three. All right. They're standalone novels all within this series. I'm excited about that. I have some events coming up. And it's just nice to be able to see this book in print. Today's short story author is Andrew Welsh Huggins. And I'm just going to read a little bit about um, Andrew right here. So Andrew Welsh Huggins is the Seamus Derringer and International Thriller Writers Award nominated author of the Andy Hayes Private Eye series. He's also the editor of Columbus Noir. Kirkus Reviews calls his new crime novel, The End of the Road, a crackerjack crime yarn chock-a-block with miscreants and a supersonic pace. His stories have appeared in Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, Mystery Magazine, The Anthologies, the Best Mystery Stories of the Year 2021, Paranoia Blues, Crime Fiction Inspired by the Songs of Paul Simon. That'd be really cool. Mickey Finn, 21st Century Noir, Volumes 1, 3, and 4, and many other magazines and anthologies. A little about today's short story. It appeared in the fall 2020 issue 
of Black Cat Mystery Magazine. Now, his private eye, it's a private eye short story, and it's titled The Whole Story. And it features his Columbus, Ohio-based character, Andy Hayes, who is a former Ohio State and Cleveland Browns quarterback turned private eye. His character has appeared in seven novels. So Andy Hayes has appeared in seven novels with an eighth, which is titled Sick to Death, coming out in September. Andy Hayes has also appeared in four short stories with three upcoming in various publications. So without further ado, let's enjoy The Whole Story by Andrew Welsh. Huggins. The man didn't bother to hold it together, which told Hayes something right there. He couldn't imagine there was any shortage of crying in prison, but maybe not a lot spilled in windowless interview rooms while talking to a private eye you've never met, with the only other sound the metallic scrape of wrist and belly and ankle chains as you shift in a chair to wipe the tears from your face. I'm sorry. I usually do better than this. Take your time, Hayes said. It's been hard. I won't insult your intelligence by saying I understand, but I can see what you're going through. The man nodded. The chains clinked. His name was Bobby Putnam. 37, but you could add 10 years and no one would call you a liar. Two days stubble patching his pale face, not exactly fat, but not far from it either, which told Hayes something else. The Bobby Putnam in the courtroom photos had been a relatively fit, handsome fellow. Now he was six months into a 12-year stretch for aggravated vehicular homicide and drunken driving and looking like he'd struggled every day of it. Hayes knew the details of the charge, but only a little bit about why he was here, talking to Putnam in a prison on the far eastern edge of Ohio, where jobs keeping inmates inside above-ground bunkers had long ago replaced jobs pulling coal out of below-ground bunkers. Putnam said, I'm not saying I'm not guilty, that I'm not responsible for what happened. You got that? I do. My daughter's dead because of me and me alone. Right. I'm not trying to change any of this. Chains clinked as he gestured as far as his restraints allowed, looking at the interview room door. I ain't making no innocence claim. Understood? Yep. I'm just saying what happened wasn't everything going on that day. I just want the full picture. That's all I'm asking. It was Hayes' turn to nod, not sure what to say. You've seen the video? Putnam asked. Hayes told him he had. You see what I'm talking about? Not really. That mean you don't believe me? That means I didn't see what you're talking about. If I didn't believe you, I wouldn't be here. Putnam brushed away a single tear rolling down his right cheek. Clink, clink. Okay, I appreciate that. It's about all I got right now, you taking the time. So I guess that's good enough. 
Good enough for what? Good enough to keep me going at least one more day. Of course, Hayes had seen the video. Who hadn't? A year ago, it led the local news for two days, not to mention careening around social media like a yellow jacket caught in a washed-out mayonnaise jar. Putnam's car, a beater of a Chevy Cruze, speeding north on Cleveland Avenue, crossing the center line, crossing back, jumping the curb, bouncing back onto the street, and T-boning a white SUV as it made a left onto a side street whole thing caught on a City of Columbus security camera bolted to a light pole. Impact so hard it knocked the SUV onto the side and ejected Putman's seven-year-old daughter, who wasn't wearing a seatbelt, partway through the front windshield. The news stations all blurred that part out, but it was there for the world to see on Facebook and Twitter and Reddit. The girl pronounced at the scene, she hadn't had a chance. Hayes had watched it again a week ago on Karen Feinberg's laptop, the two of them sitting on a bench on the second floor of the Franklin County Courthouse during a 10-minute break between two of Feinberg's hearings. What am I looking for? Here, Feinberg pointed. What? Hayes stared at the image frozen where Feinberg stopped the video. Him. Who? That guy on the sidewalk. Hayes looked closer. In the picture, a man stood on the south side of the street, facing south, toward the direction of Putman's car. White, youngish guy, younger than Hayes, anyway. In the tableau, Putman was just about to plow into the turning SUV. For a moment, Hayes felt intrusive, like a gawking time traveler examining a figure with no idea what the future held in a matter of microseconds. Feinberg restarted the video. Hayes saw the crash take place for the umpteenth time. But for the first time, he noticed that the man, whoever he was, jumped back at the sound of the collision, stood for a moment longer, hesitated, and then disappeared off screen. Who is he? No idea, Feinberg said. What's he holding? Grocery bag. There's a market across the street. Does Putman know him? No, but, but, he thinks the driver of the SUV did. Know him, I mean. Why? It's easier if he explains it. Short version. Something about the expression on the driver's face right before the crash. He remembers that? He says he does. What do you think? Feinberg's phone pinged. She picked it up, examined it, and answered a text. Hayes waited patiently. Feinberg was a busy defense attorney. Hayes also knew that she and her wife were always occupied with the activities of their young son and were now preparing for a second baby on the way. More importantly, he had appreciated the work she found for him. He'd wait. Sorry, Feinberg said, returning the phone to her purse. This is what I think. I have a lot of clients who didn't do it. They swear they're innocent. It was this other guy. They got me mixed up with my cousin. The cops have it out for me. 
and a good month, six of 10 like that. What I don't have very many of are clients like Bobby Putnam, guys who admit they're guilty, who aren't looking to get out of prison, who aren't bugging me about the bad deal they got. He just wants someone to confirm his suspicions that the driver of the SUV knew the guy on the sidewalk. That's all. Cops make the connection, never came up. They know who the guy is. Not as far as I know, Feinberg said, which isn't all that surprising. There were three other witnesses on the street that day, plus two other drivers, plus the video. He wasn't needed. Who was in the SUV? The guy named Jeff Broomfield. Was he cited? Are you kidding? The accident was entirely Putman's fault. He was just trying to get out of the way. But Putman still wants me to find that guy, the one on the sidewalk. That's right, Hayes said. No offense, but the whole thing is one white coat short of loony bins, if I can be blunt. Why bother? Normally, I'd agree. But like I told you, I don't get many ex-clients who contact me about remaining guilty. He's adamant on that point. Plus, he can pay. Or his family can, anyway. His brothers put up $2,500 for me to hire an investigator to make some inquiries. And knowing you, you told them it was a fool's errand and to save their money. I might have used stronger language. But yeah, that's the gist. They insisted on Bobby's behalf. I told them I'd see what I could do. And called me. I wanted the best. You're sweet, and always wily, since you're probably guessing I'm broke and could use the money. Guessing? Let's just say there might be room on my calendar. Okay, I'll talk to the guy, see what I can do, but no promises, especially given the facts. That's all I can ask. Feinberg's phone pinged again, and she retrieved it from her purse. Sorry, next hearing's about to start. Thanks, Andy. I'll make the arrangements for you to visit Bobby. You'll let me know how it goes. Yes, just don't hold your breath. Roger that. Hayes spent the next hour in the clerk's office copying documents from Putman's case. The details were grim. A blood sample taken when Putman arrived at Grant's hospital showed a 0.17 blood alcohol content, more than twice the legal limit. Prosecutors included a litany of traffic citations from Putman's past in their arguments, pushing for the harshest possible sentence, including a previous DUI, along with the fact Putman was driving without insurance and on a suspended license at the time. Plus, the fact he'd allowed his daughter to sit up front without her seatbelt on. Feinberg had done her best to counter, noting Putman was employed, he had a job cleaning office buildings downtown overnight, and had made good faith efforts to attend substance abuse counseling sessions before the accident. The judge wasn't impressed and handed down the maximum sentence available. Finished with the file. Hayes emailed a public records request for the investigation to the Division of Police. He hoped there was something in it. As it stood, he'd seen more helpful paperwork on lost puppy cases, and Putnam 
was going to need a lot more than that. How can you be so sure Broomfield was looking at that guy? Hayes said, knowing his time with Putman was growing short and that it was a long drive back to Columbus from the prison. Because I saw him, his expression, which was like rage, pure rage. No offense, but you were drunk. I know. And you didn't say anything to the cops at the time. Putnam nodded. Hayes knew all this because he'd read the police file he received a day earlier, twice through. As he feared, it was all too thin. No mention of Broomfield looking at a man on the sidewalk as he made the turn onto Washington Street. No mention of the man, either. Police interviewed two women who'd been walking on the other side of the street. A guy a block down who had seen Putman jump the curb and the other drivers Feinberg mentioned. Every story consistent with what was obvious on the video. A speeding drunk weaving back and forth nailed a driver making a legal left turn. Hayes momentarily wondered what Broomfield, a guy from the suburbs, was doing in that part of town, but his statement in the police file answered the question quickly. A contractor, he was on the way to a job site at the time, just happening to cut down a side street off Cleveland Avenue on his unlucky day. I didn't say anything to the cops because I didn't remember it right afterward. Took me weeks, trying out in a cell, clearing my head, before it came to me. By then, it was too late. Too late? Who's going to believe me, huh? Barely employed shithead whose drinking gets his innocent daughter killed. Hutman's eyes grew bright. I ain't stupid, and I'm not naive. I know what I did. Chances aren't good I'll turn anything up. I know, but if anybody can find something, probably going to be you. What do you mean? Ain't you the guy played for the Browns? Allegedly played, according to some. What's that got to do with anything? Anybody play for the Browns the last 30 years knows about lost causes. The accident's investigating officer was a central casting Columbus sergeant named Pete Packer. Straight arrow, bullshit detector set to high, and fop picnic or two away from a dad bod, but still in chase em down an alley shape for now. A Bengals fan to boot, so not interested in Hayes' glory day up in Cleveland, however splendid that Sunday afternoon had been. Is this a joke? Packer said. That's the clearest cut vehicular ag assault I've ever seen. Putman got everything he deserved and more. How anybody could be that irresponsible with their own kid. It's not about guilt, Hayes reminded him. It's about the guy on the sidewalk. What about him? They were sitting in a coffee shop across the street from the substation Packer worked out of in Linden. The two cups of coffee Hayes had bought on the table between them. Any idea who he is, Hayes said. Not a clue. Why not? Packer blew the steam off his coffee and took a sip. He didn't matter. We had so many other witnesses, we had to bring in extra guys just to take statements. Seem odd? He 
who walks away after a crash like that? Once upon a time, maybe. These days, it's odd when people stick around. Maybe he had a warrant out on him. We see that all the time. Why do the right thing if it's going to end with a ride to jail? Maybe he hates cops. Maybe he's late for the dentist. Could be a million reasons. If the accident happened late at night with nobody else around but him, I'd maybe have a different opinion. But this one? Who cares? Broomfield didn't mention him? Who? Jeff Broomfield, the guy Putman hit. He didn't say anything about knowing the guy on the sidewalk. Not to my knowledge. He had a few other things on his mind. Any idea why he turned left at that moment? He must have seen Putman coming. He gambled, as I recall. Thought Putman was going to his right. Turns out he called it wrong. Packer took another drink of coffee. You read the file? Hayes tapped the folder before him and explained that he had. Nothing in there? Nothing about Broomfield knowing the guy. I also tried a reverse image search on him. And? And unless Rock Hudson is alive and walking the streets of Columbus? That's a dead end, too. No ID. Then that's it, I guess, Packer said. I guess so, Hayes said. Except you don't think it is. Hayes' turn to drink coffee. I think nothing in this case points to Broomfield knowing the guy on the sidewalk, except for Putman's word, which is worth about as much as a used Kleenex at this point. Which bugs me. I mean, why bother? Easy. He's looking for grounds for an appeal. He says he's not. Oh, really? He says he just wants to be proven right that the two knew each other. And you believe that? I believe that's what he wants. Good for you, Packer said, rising from his seat. You think it's a wild goose chase. I think it's your time to waste, Hayes. Do what you want. Once Packer had gone, Hayes pulled out his phone and dialed the number for Jeff Broomfield that he'd pulled off the police report. The contractor picked up on the third ring. Hayes gave him his name, dropped the word investigator, and explained he was calling about Bobby Putman. What about him? Carefully, Hayes said. He's spinning a crazy story about the accident. Says there's more there than meets the eye. I was just meeting with the police about him. They're not happy, believe me. What kind of story? Kind of thing could be grounds for an appeal, you know. Better if we nip it in the bud now. You're working for the police? Maybe I could come by, clear things up. You still on that construction site on Mock? What? Hayes repeated the question. After a moment, Broomfield said, I'm working up north right now, Union County. It's not really convenient at the moment. Maybe another time. Only takes a couple of minutes. Putman wins his appeal. He could be back on the streets in a month. You really think there's a chance of that? You know how judges are these days. I'll think about it. I'll call you, okay? Let me check one thing. You turn to avoid hitting Putman, is that right? Yeah. No other reason. What other reason would there be? Hey, I've really got to go. Thanks for your time, Hayes said, cutting the connection. 
he opened the folder containing the police reports. Something was bothering him. He flipped backward through the pages of interviews and the police narrative up to the initial incident report. He scanned it and found what he was looking for. Victim said his view of the oncoming car was blocked by a van and SUV in front of him. Broomfield's view was blocked? That's not what he said later. His fuller statement to police included the story about turning at left to avoid Putman. So which was it? Hayes opened his notebook and found Broomfield's home address. But first, because he wasn't that far, he took a drive out to Mock Road to check on that construction site. Broomfield lived in a subdivision in Genoa Township on the northeast side in a butter yellow two-story with a Japanese maple in the front yard. The house sat on a curving suburban street of other two-story houses, most of which also had trees in their front yards, along with kids' bikes and driveways, Ohio State flags on porches, and lawns mostly devoid of dandelions. The kind of neighborhood Hayes couldn't see himself living in, but wouldn't mind visiting more often, especially if a cookout was involved. Yes? A woman standing on the threshold, opening the door a minute after he rang the bell late that afternoon. Pleasant face, short brown hair, professional blouse and slacks, as if she hadn't been home from work all that long. He produced a business card and handed it to her, asking at the same time if Jeff was home. Not yet, she said, studying the card. He usually works late. What's this about? Hayes gave her the book jacket blurb for the reason for his visit, in line with what he told her husband over the phone that afternoon. I thought that was all wrapped up, she said. The trial and everything. What that awful man did. Hopefully it is, but you never know. Any idea when he might be home? Jeff works pretty long hours. Behind them, a girl's voice yelling for mom. The woman sighed, hesitated, and beckoned Hayes inside. She gestured at a couch in the living room and disappeared down a hall. She returned a few moments later. She said her name was Jeanette. She was very sorry to hear that something might be happening to provide Putman the right to an appeal. My husband could have been killed. I know. I've, I've seen the video. So you know there's no question about what happened? Yes. Then what's left for Putman to argue? Hayes reached into the pocket of his blue sports coat and retrieved an envelope. He opened it and pulled out a photo a screenshot of the man on the sidewalk that he'd printed out at Walgreens that morning. I know it sounds wacky, but Putman, he said the name dismissively, the way you say the names of serial killers or hedge fund traders, has this idea that your husband knew this guy. He handed her the photo and studied her face carefully. She showed no more emotion than had he confessed to preferring banana splits to hot fudge sundaes. Recognize him? She studied the photo a moment longer, shook her head, and handed the picture back to Hayes. I'm sorry, I can't help you. 
Keep it, Hayes said. Maybe Jeff knows him. I doubt it. Worth a shot, though, don't you think? Anything to keep Putman from a successful appeal? Before she could respond, another call for assistance from the kitchen. Jeanette excused herself again. Hayes said he understood. When she was gone, he walked over to the bookshelf beside the TV and examined some of the framed photos. Jeff and Jeanette and two kids, boy and girl, on the beach and in the woods and in a family portrait. One of Jeff by himself, hard hat on, shovel in his hands at a construction site. Mom? The girl's voice again. Hayes felt himself sympathizing with Jeanette Broomfield. He knew from experience with his own boys the toll that the needs of teenagers could take, from summoning a parent for help with homework to disdain for that self-same help. Realizing time was short, he pulled out his phone and took a few pictures, including the one of Jeff with a shovel and one of Jeanette by herself, straddling a road touring bike, decked out in not unattractive lycra riding gear, a smile on her face the happiest she seemed in any of the photos. Mom? Hayes turned his head. That didn't sound right. Wasn't Jeanette? Mom? Already in the kitchen? He stepped into the passageway, separating the rooms, and peered around the corner. Sitting at a table in an attached dining room was a girl, 14 or 15, mouth full of braces, hair pulled back in a ponytail her profile leaving little doubt she was Jeanette's daughter. She was staring at her mother. Hayes looked closer. Jeanette Broomfield was taking deep, gulping breaths. With her left hand on the kitchen island, as if to keep herself from collapsing. In her right hand, picture of the man on the sidewalk, crumpled up like a grotesque attempt at origami. Mrs. Broomfield he said. Is everything all right? Please, get out of my house, she said, without turning around. Hayes thought about returning the next morning to tell Jeanette, but just as quickly nixed the idea. That approach looked good on TV and in the movies, with the investigator's casual adjustment of sunglasses and the confident turn of the steering wheel as he swept into traffic. In reality, Rainbow Sherbert had a longer shelf life than the amount of time it would take someone in the Broomfields neighborhood to bust a strange guy sitting in an unfamiliar Honda Odyssey parked on a street full of kids. Hayes had no interest in making the acquaintanceship of the Genoa Township cops, and he hoped the feeling was mutual. Instead, he started his day at Walgreens, printing out several more copies of the video screen grab of Sidewalk Guy, along with the photo of Jeanette on her bike. Done, he drove across downtown, turned north on Cleveland, and ten minutes later turned right onto Washington Street. He parked and walked back up to the intersection. Traffic flowed in both directions. A handful of people waited for a bus half a block up. A kid in a hoodie, who probably should have been in school, sauntered down the street on the opposite side. Naturally, a year later, no evidence remained of the accident. 
but as Hayes watched a small red car stop, wait for oncoming traffic, and then turn left onto Washington, just as Jeff Broomfield had tried to do in his much bigger vehicle, it was easy to imagine how the disaster unfolded. But why? Because Broomfield didn't see Putney? Or because he did and was trying to avoid him? Hayes started at the corner market, where a young woman wearing a headscarf manned the checkout counter. The store was the only one within a few blocks. If the guy on the sidewalk had just purchased something, as the bag in his hand suggested, and he were on foot, it had to be here. Hayes's hopes rose when the woman said the man looked familiar, though she didn't know who he was then fell when she said she'd never seen Jeanette Broomfield before. Deflated, Hayes moved down to the first house on the south side of the street, closest to Cleveland Avenue. A green bungalow with a hand-painted Nora's Nails sign in the yard, and knocked, and knocked again. Yeah? The face of the woman who answered the door was puffy and splotched with red, as if she'd just woken up after a restless sleep or given herself a facial with witch hazel. She was wearing a purple bathrobe and authentic fuzzy slippers and smelled of cigarettes and nail polish remover. She was Hayes's age, give or take a decennial census count. Sorry to bother you, he handed her the photos. I'm looking for either of these people. Wondered if you know them. The opposite reaction this time. She recognized Jeanette Broomfield had seen her on her bike on the street, but not for a while. She didn't know the man. She looked at Hayes closely as she handed the pictures back. Why are you looking for them? They won the lottery. They need to claim their winnings. How much? Enough to make it worth my while to find them. Why ask me? You're the first house I started at. That's the only reason? Hayes told her it was. Lotteries don't work that way, sailor, she said. But if you want to come inside, then tell me more. I make a mean cup of coffee. As she spoke, she brushed wisps of hair out of her eyes. Below her waist, Hayes detected the hint of an emergent need at the parting of the robe. Trying to cut down on caffeine, but thanks. Suit yourself, she said, shutting the door louder than he really thought necessary. And so it went all the way down the street and up the other side. No one home at half the places. The rest, a mix of retirees, second shifters just starting their day, a couple young moms, and more than one guy in a hoodie who probably should have been at school or at work or in a detention facility. He took a break at lunchtime, sitting in his van and eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and reading dispatch headlines on his phone. He texted Karen Feinberg and told her what he was up to, just to feel useful. I know Bobby appreciates it, she replied. It was almost three o'clock when he knocked on a neatly kept brick cottage, two-thirds of the way up the other side of Washington. He gave it a second try, waited a bit more, crossed it off his list, and headed down the steps. A moment later, the sound of a deadbolt being thrown turned him around. Hayes introduced himself to the young man who opened the door and repeated his spiel. You know, I think that's Randy. 
the man said, studying the photo. A brown and white mutt materialized by his side a moment later. Grandy? Pretty sure, yeah. He has a beard now, so he looks different. I told him it made him look older, but not in a good way. Just joshing around, you know. But he said he was keeping it. How long has he had it? The beard? Hard to say. Six months? No, maybe a year. Which house is his? It's the red one. But the thing is, you're on the wrong street. I'm sorry. This is Washington. He lives one street south on Carrington. I usually end up over there walking Louie. He reached down and scratched the top of his dog's head. Hayes pushed him for a fuller description of the house. The man said it was hard to miss because Randy had made a lot of improvements. He thought he worked in construction. Hayes thanked him and asked if the man recognized Jeanette Broomfield. Yep, I've seen her over there, once or twice. Maybe his girlfriend? He dropped his voice. She's not so friendly, if you know what I mean. Oh? Doesn't say hi much. What's this about, if I can ask? Silly, civil, deposition thing, Hayes said for the 50th time that morning, having dropped the lottery ruse after Nora's nails. No big deal. Well, tell him Shakin said hi, and to lose the beard. Will do. Hayes walked up to Cleveland, turned south, and turned left on Carrington Avenue. He found the house easily, because Shakin was right about the work Randy had done. New siding, new gutters, new walkway. Climbing the steps to a renovated porch, Hayes found himself admiring its freshly painted railing spindles. Poured concrete floor and glazed planter pots filled with begonias on either side of the top step. Hayes approached the door. No question here about someone home. He could hear voices through an open window. He knocked. Voices stopped as suddenly as a radio dropped into an Ohio farm pond. He knocked again. Silence. He knocked a third time and hit the bell as well. After a full minute, the door cracked open. A man with a beard stared at Hayes through the narrow space. Randy? Who are you? I'm someone who needs to talk to you and to Jeanette Broomfield. I don't know anyone named. A regression analyst suggests otherwise. I'm not here to make trouble. I just have a couple of questions. About what? About what happened up the street a year ago. You need to leave right now. Get off my property. You can talk to me or you can talk to the police. Trust me, I'm your better option. I told you. It's okay. He knows. A woman's voice, one Hayes recognized. A moment later, the door swung all the way open. Jeanette Broomfield stood just behind Randy. She rested her left hand on his right shoulder. He's got no right Randy said. Of course he doesn't, she said, because we haven't done anything wrong. None of this changes what Bobby Putman did to himself or to Jeff, she said, looking at Hayes, her eyes as hard as the newly installed siding on Randy's house. That's true, Hayes said, but made it no further, interrupted by the sound of a vehicle screeching to a stop on the street behind him a large vehicle. 
he turned to see a black Ford F-350 stopped in the middle of Carrington Avenue, directly in front of Randy's house, blocking traffic in both directions. A magnetic vehicle sign on the driver's side door sported a pair of crossed shovels and said, Broomfield Contracting, Home and Commercial. The driver's side door opened and a man climbed out, his back to the crowd on the porch as he reached into the truck. A moment later, he turned, a real shovel in his right hand. You said this was over. Headed up the walk fast, shovel held in both hands, Jeff Broomfield. It is over, Jeanette said, voice tinged with fear. I told you. Then what are you doing here? Get lost, Randy said, emerging onto the porch. You, Broomfield said, picking up speed. As Broomfield mounted the steps, Hayes pivoted to face him, placing himself between him and Randy. Now, just hold on. Who the hell are you? A guy who should know better, Hayes said, grabbing the shovel with both hands. Broomfield's grip was firm and he didn't let go. Get out of my way. First, put the shovel down. Mind your own business, asshole. Broomfield was a big guy and strong an easy match for all the push-ups Hayes prided himself on. They stood there, gasping and grunting for what felt like a full minute, grappling like Greco-Roman wrestlers aiming for a comeback. Hayes was starting to lose his hold and fearing he might not be able to prevent Broomfield and the shovel from wreaking havoc on the couple behind him. When Broomfield stepped back, missed the top step, and nearly stumbled. As he did, the edge of the shovel accidentally flew up and struck him in the face. Broomfield staggered down the steps, letting go of the shovel as red bloomed from his nose. Hayes turned and presented the shovel to a pair of hands behind him, then pulled a handkerchief from his pocket and handed it to Broomfield to stem the blood flow. Which is why, back turned, he didn't see the blow coming. Crack! went the shovel head against the back of Hayes' head. The last thing he remembered was how pretty the begonias looked as he fell to his knees. Packer, from the Linden substation, arrived five minutes after the responding patrol officers. Hayes was already in cuffs, sitting in the back of a CPD cruiser. Packer heard Hayes out from the beginning of the day's canvas of Washington Street to the encounter at Randy's house, one street south. So Mrs. Broomfield was having an affair with this guy? Looks that way. But what's that got to do with the accident? With the crash itself? Nothing. Bobby Putnam was drunk and out of control and hit Mr. Broomfield. End of story. It's what Broomfield was doing here that matters. I thought he was cutting over to a construction site. Hayes shook his head. I checked. That project ended six months before the accident. So what then? Oldest story in the world after cheating on your taxes. Jeff found out his wife was having an affair, and with who, and drove over here to have it out with Randy, and he found him, just not where he expected. Meaning? Meaning he saw him on the sidewalk up there. Hayes nodded up the street and turned onto Washington instead. Instead of what? Instead of onto Carrington, 
which is where Randy lives. What was Randy doing up there? Hayes related his conversation with the woman with the headscarf at the market. Buying milk or something is my guess. He just crossed the street when Broomfield saw him. And Broomfield planned to do what, turning like that? Who knows? Run him down? Challenge him to a mahjong? You'll have to ask him. Either way, he lied. Lied? He was turning to avoid Putman. He was turning to go after Randy. His first story was probably half true. His view was blocked, but he was also focusing on the sidewalk, not the street. Packer sighed and said he'd check it out. Eventually, it turned out Hayes was right. Randy was a subcontractor on a couple of Jeff's projects and met Jeanette at a Christmas party two years earlier. Things then transpired the way they often do between women and men who aren't entirely happy with the hand life has dealt them. Jeff found out and set out to do something about it, but found himself at the wrong place at the wrong time, directly in the crosshairs of drunken Bobby Putnam. It took a few days to straighten everything out. Broomfield spent the afternoon of the confrontation in the hospital having his broken nose reset. He sat in an emergency room bay, three down from where Hayes sat, receiving seven staples to close the gash in his nose. Broomfield withdrew his threat of assault charges against Hayes after Hayes informed him he had no intention of carrying out a similar threat against the person who struck him with the shovel. Jeanette Broomfield. Meanwhile, Randy lost the beard. Hayes spoke briefly to Karen Feinberg the day everything went down. She assured him she'd let Bobby know. He called her three days later to check in. Andy, I was just about to call you. Don't worry, it's not about the money. I just wanted to see how Bobby was. I was thinking I might go back and see him. A freebie. A long pause. You can't. Why not? It's no charge. For reals. I was hoping to... He's dead, Andy. He was found unresponsive in his cell at three this morning. He hanged himself with his bedsheet. Hayes couldn't speak for a moment. Did he know? I mean, did you tell him? Feinberg told him that Putman knew that she'd explained what Hayes found out, that his suspicions had been confirmed. He left a note, just so you know. It won't be made public. What did it say? It was to you. To me? I can show you a copy if you want. It just said to thank you. To thank me? To tell you that was all he wanted. Just the truth. The truth? Hayes said bitterly. The whole story, she said. The end. Oh, that was really cool. I, I dig this guy. I dig this guy, Hayes. He's, it's interesting characters. Um, just as I was reading how they come across. And uh, like I said, I, I, I dig this guy, Hayes. Cool character. Cool character, Andrew. So everyone knows The End of the Road by Andrew Welsh Huggins is available 
April 2nd, 2024. It's on Amazon for pre-order the uh, paperback. And uh, yeah, check out Andrew's work. His website is Andrew Welsh Huggins. I'll spell that. A-N-D isn't delicious. R-E-W-W-E-L-S-H-H-U-G-G-I-N-S dot com. There's lots on Andrew's uh, website. I'm just looking at it here. Um, his, his number of books, lots of books, different events, his short fiction. So everyone, take it easy. Be safe. Be healthy. And I will catch you next week for another short story. All right. Have a good day, everyone. See ya.